Welcome to the latest in our series to mark the launch of Wilmot Smith on Construction Contracts, fourth edition. I'm delighted today to have John Dennis Smith with me, uh, who was the principal contributor to Chapter 2, Standard Forms of Contract and Bespoke Contracts. I'm going to explore with John some of the issues that have arisen uh, over the years since the third edition of Wilmot Smith. Of course, now we have adjudication. Cases don't get to the courts on the construction of standard forms as often as they used to. John, what trend have you noticed in the uh, world of standard forms over the period which you looked at for the fourth edition? Thank you very much, Paul. Um, I'll break down what's new in this edition into the following points. First, the importance of following through. Uh, second, the courts reaching decisions about what some of the most recently developed standard form contracts actually mean. Next, the courts considering amendments to standard forms by parties who've decided to ratchet up the effect of what those standard forms provide. And Finally, the thrust of the new forms and the way in which the courts have interpreted them recently. So, uh, first of all, on the importance of following through, it does seem obvious that if parties choose a standard form, that will help the parties avoid problems in identifying what their rights and obligations are. It doesn't always work out that way in practice, and the courts have pointed out in different ways the importance of following through the process first of completing a standard form contract because it doesn't completely write itself and second following it through in implementation. So on the first point which is a JCT uh, case um, there's a case called Grove Developments and Balfour BT. That doesn't help very much because there are lots of cases involving Grove Developments and Balfour BT but this is the one that's 2016 EWCA CIV 990 and that tells you it's a court of appeal decision. The parties had amended their contract on the terms of the 2011 design and build contract, and they had agreed a specific schedule of interim applications and payments. And as you can imagine, just having my, uh, heard that, they went over that period. And the court held that once the agreed schedule expired, the contractor had no right to apply for further payments prior to the final payment stage. And that meant the contractor in that case lost the benefit of cash flow beyond that point. So the first point is you need to look further ahead than what you think is bound to happen if, when you're filling in the document. The second point is an NEC contract. And we're beginning to see many more decisions, when I say many more, starting from zero in, on, on NEC terms. And this is a case called Mears and Shoreline Housing Partnership. It's at 2015 EWHC 1396 TCC. Now, the parties are contracted in that case on the terms of the NEC 3 term service contract conditions, which incorporated an option, which is option C. That's a target cost contract in which the parties are to share the pain or the gain. In practice, however, they didn't actually follow the terms. And what happened was that their conduct was held to give rise to a stopper by convention and a stopper by representation, with the result that the defendant housing partnership was not entitled to make deductions from sums due on the basis that it had made alleged overpayments to the contractor claimant. 
So the message for both these cases is that you, you really have to fill in the forms. And then if you once you've done that, you really do need to put them into effect. Can I just pick that up? Are we seeing the, the courts now, the, the real development in this area being the courts looking at these forms? Obviously, we had NEC4, I entirely accept. But is there a sort of general trend that we're now in the phase of revisions to forms and the courts looking at them rather than any new uh, structural issue with the standard form families? I think that takes us back to the point you made at the start, Paul, which is that what we're not getting anymore is a tour d'horizon of suites of contract by the courts because there simply aren't enough decisions by the courts which are telling you how these contracts have to work generally. You're getting decisions on particular points and so we're getting something of a, uh, well, in theory, a mosaic. Patchwork quilt. Yeah, in theory, we're getting a mosaic, yeah. but in practice, um, it doesn't always work that way. And... We do have, for example, um, this very odd situation in which, on the one hand, there are areas where the courts haven't caught up at all to what's going on, and in other areas um, where uh, the courts are moving beyond that to uh, amendments. I'll I'll give a brief example on the first point, which is that the JCT Design and Build Contract 2016 uh, talks about a BIM protocol. Now, uh, building information management and so on, building information modelling um, is something that um, was uh, part of a government strategy back in May 2011. Uh, and there's been a practice note from the JCT uh, uh, called BIM and JCT contracts, but there isn't a BIM protocol as such. The parties have to agree it. And at the moment, uh, we don't have any decision by the courts on those sorts of matters. Um, on the other hand, um, we do have decisions on what people in books have said is a particular type of uh, philosophy, um, but in practice, the decision doesn't necessarily go in quite the way that one might have expected it to go. Uh, and a good example of this is um, NEC, um, where there's supposed to be a philosophy of uh, collaborative work, uh, changes to work are addressed and resolved along the way, and they're not left over for determination later. That's a very important feature of NEC in any of the textbooks you'll read about NEC or indeed what NEC say about NEC themselves. Um, Now, one area where um, that's very important is um, um, the collaborative obligations of mutual trust and cooperation, which you find in NEC 4, which is the latest version, in clause 10.1 and clause 10.2. Now, there's always this question, well, how far does that affect the obligations and rights which are otherwise set out of the contract? And in a decision a few years ago called Costain Limited versus Tarmac Holdings, and again, it's probably useful to have the case for reference given the names of the parties. It's 2017 EWHC 319 TCC. Uh, the court held that the term uh, which applied an obligation, well, expressly imposed an obligation of mutual trust and cooperation is a form of contractual duty which requires the obligor to have regard to the interest of the obligee but then it went on to say that the obligor has an obligate has a right to take into account its own self-interest and it was then held that this obligation may go no further than a negative obligation not to do something which might mislead um, and would extend to a positive obligation, perhaps, to correct a false assumption, which was obviously being made by the other party. Um, but one then asks the question, well, does that take us any further than a, the, the implied term of mutual trust and cooperation that 
you have in that notorious decision, Merton and Stanley Leach, which goes back to 1986. And the answer for the court was perhaps it doesn't. Um, so NEC might be a little bit surprised by that because uh, they took the view uh, that they were going further than the common law. There's always been a tension between the courts and the drafters of standard forms. The number of times the standard forms drafters say, that isn't what we meant. Um, and I think, you know, you, your chapter's done very well to synthesise all that because, as you say, courts, uh, black-letter interpretation of these sort of contractual procedures that are so well run can, can make yeah, a big there are difference. Two, I mean, two, two good cases on that, on, on NEC. Um, first... Um, there's a decision, it's a Northern Irish decision, so it's a persuasive authority in England and Wales. Northern Ireland Housing Executive and Healthy Buildings Ireland, which is 2017 NIQB 43. Now that's on clause 10.1 of the NEC 3 form, but the wording is now... That, that's, that's the one that followed on the appeal right. that I did in Northern Ireland. Yeah, in and it's an interesting case. decision because um, what happened was the parties hadn't actually um, followed through the procedure in terms of uh, making an assessment, getting an assessment by the um, uh, by the relevant person. And um, the first point that the uh, court held was that um, you had a right, because of the obligation of mutual trust uh, and cooperation um, under Clause 10, um, the um, employer had a right to see the actual costs of the contractor. And the second point it um, held was that when you carry out the assessment um, retrospectively, because it wasn't carried out when it should have been, uh, then you do look at the actual cost. Now, the situation in which uh, NEC drafted this thing was very much on the basis that you would do it prospectively on the basis of forecasts. And that decision rather brings into question um, what's going to happen in future. Uh, the second uh, decision is an English decision, and this brings in the uh, question of um, what happens where you have adjudication provisions. As you mentioned before, you, you do have a right to adjudication, at least where there's a, a an act that falls under the 1996 Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act. And in this case, Imperial Chemical Industries versus Merit Merrill Technology. This is number three. There'll be a number it's 2018 EWHC 1577 TCC. Um, uh, Mr. Justice Fraser held that although NEC 4 Clause 66.3 provides that an assessment of a compensation event is not revised, nonetheless an adjudicator can open it up. Now, one can, as a black letter lawyer, understand that decision as being the inevitable effect of the right to adjudicate. But again, um, one has the feeling that is not at all what NEC wanted um, when they drafted this provision. Anyone listening to this will be able to tell from the encyclopedic recall that John Dennis Smith has of these cases that this is a chapter that is very much worth reading. It manages to get the balance right in my view. Uh, I hope I'm not being too praising of our own book, but it right, managed to get the balance right of the big picture and detail. 
Uh, and that, for me, is a, a real skill. We'll obviously be looking at this chapter hard as time goes on. One of the things I plan to do for the fifth edition is to work out, and John talked about BIM, which I think is part of our evolution, statute, the way in which statutory intervention, CDM regulations, fits into standard forms. And that's going to be one of our new things for the fifth edition. So, John, I'm afraid your name's, your, your name's on the chapter again. Thank you both. Thank you very much indeed for joining Pleasure. us with this.